We're going to read the Bible together now um, as we continue our series in Daniel. So we'll be reading from Daniel chapter 5, which is on page 6 and 7 of your zines. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that they had taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all of the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. "'May the king live forever,' she said. "'Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale.' There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and will tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth 
and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand, the hand that wrote the inscription. This, this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that you reveal yourself to us. As we look at it now, we pray that you might uh, teach us, you might challenge us, you might bring us comfort, uh, and that you might, by your spirit, change us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in the book of Daniel. We'll kick straight in tonight. We've been looking over the past few weeks um, of Daniel's rise in, in Babylon. The Israelites are in Babylon because they're in exile. Uh, under God's judgment, they've been taken to this foreign city, and up to this point, they've been under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's dominated the narrative up to this point in chapter 4, and then tonight, we drop straight into a new scenario with a new king uh, and uh, a new lesson for us, uh, and so we're going to jump straight in, so keep it open on pages 6 and 7 if you I want to follow along. But we enter tonight in a, in a scene. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of big party scene. We're told there's a thousand guests. It's the movers and the shakers, the beautiful uh, of Babylon. And we see there that there is flowing wine uh, and all sorts of things. I don't know if you've seen on Netflix, there's a documentary at the moment called Fire Festival. And it's about this festival that, that started in... Uh, as an idea amongst um, a, a founder, Billy McFarland, who, who basically touted this festival as the festival of the decade. Uh, to do so, we got Instagram influencers and models to, to tease the event online. Uh, it was the promise of bespoke glamping accommodation in the Bahamas, the best food, the best musical acts. And, and this documentary traces this event that actually just turned out to be a fraud and absolute chaos. It's a, it's a fascinating watch. Uh, Billy McFarlane is now in prison, and he owes about $26 million. And it's interesting, though, because the veneer of social media, you know, this, this guy, his power, was suddenly stripped away, and reality was shown, and he was found wanting. And in a similar situation, where we're in a, a party tonight where his power, King Belshazzar, is on display and with a revelation, a revealing, 
is stripped away and he's left wanting. That's where we are tonight. Uh, as we think about it, just to think a little about context and occasion, um, you'll see this is a new king, Belshazzar. We're told this is Nebuchadnezzar's son. Uh, history tells us that there were kings in between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Uh, and so when the author speaks about Belshazzar being Nebuchadnezzar's son, it does so in a way which refers to his descendant. Uh, as it's speaking, you can actually see this history in the British Museum. There's these scroll things that you can go look at, and the history's all there. It's, a, it's quite a fascinating thing uh, to see. But what the narrator is really wanting to draw our attention to is that there's two kings kind of on display. You've got Nebuchadnezzar and you've got Belshazzar. He's wanting just to see these two kings. In one sense, two arrogant kings uh, with two different outcomes. So just keep that in mind as we, as we go through the story. But the story begins in verses 1 to 5 in a banquet. It's a great banquet. The occasion is not, is not mentioned, but we do know something about it in the sense that uh, in verses 28 to 31, we, we know that the Persians are outside the city, but yet this king, so proud, is holding a banquet. He's obviously not feeling threatened by this. Uh, but we're told who is there, so there's a thousand, including the nobles, his wives and concubines. This is the important in society. But notice who's not there. Daniel's not there. Raises some question for us. And then we're told what is happening. Uh, they, are, they are drinking. Uh, they're singing praises to, to their gods. And in this alcohol-fueled reverie that we, we see, this hedonistic pursuit of pleasure... Uh, we, see, we see the end of it, but in a sense this passage isn't about hedonism as much as it is about arrogance and what God does it, because pride is said to be the root of all sin, and in this we see that hedonism is pride expressed through what a culture thinks is important. And in, in this story we see it uh, in Babylon's power on display. And so how is it expressed? How do we see pride? How do we see human arrogance in this story? Well, in verses 1 to 9, we see it, we are told, we are told, uh, as Belshazzar, as he has this feast, he summons for the goblets from Israel's temple to be brought so that his guests can drink every week. There's only one common denominator here, unfortunately, and that's me. It's not the sound person, so thank you, Joey. I'm sorry. Uh, so you see that they have these goblets, and he, and he brings them out for his guests to drink out of. Now, we're told that these goblets were in Israel's temple. Nebuchadnezzar had brought them across in chapter 1, verse 2. We see that. And as a way in order to demonstrate his power, and in one sense, the mocking of other powers... Israel's God, he calls for these goblets to be brought in and they drink from them as they sing to their gods. So we see his, his arrogance on display, both because the Persians are there outside the city, we assume in you, and secondly, because he showed his contempt for Israel's God in the drinking of these goblets, or from these goblets. Now, as we, as we read this, because we'll see that, that this is a serious sin in the story, but a question for us is, well, what, what's so bad about that? 
Uh, I've got a friend uh, a long time ago. He, um, he came home. He lived in Newtown with his girlfriend. And when he arrived home on the street, all his stuff was on the street. Now, he, he immediately got the point. It wasn't his stuff that was out. It was that he was out in that situation. And in a similar situation, by drinking of these vessels, by singing these, these praises to these non-gods, it wasn't simply that these guys were just getting trashed on alcohol. It was that they were trashing God. It was as if Belshazzar was saying, Israel's God, the living God in Babylon, has no reality or power. It was scorning him. It was mocking him by showing that he counted him as out in Babylon. He showed contempt for God's stuff, and in doing so, showed contempt for God. And this act, in verse 23, Daniel says, is setting himself up against the Lord of heaven. Now, as we go through this, we'll just have some reflections. But, but what can we learn from, from this? Because it's quite significant. Contempt for God's stuff is contempt for God. Here, it's these goblets. But is there any sense in which we can draw a parallel for us today? Because actually, we can, we can flip that. Contempt for God's stuff is contempt for God. But if we flip it, it's, it's what's precious to God should be precious to, to God's people or to others. See, we can easily make light of the things that God deems important or, or sacred. And so, when Belshazzar takes these vessels, they were a symbol of God's presence amongst his people, and he was displaying his power over this God as it were. And in a similar way, if we make light of things that God deems important or precious, well, in a similar way, we might be unwittingly showing contempt to that which God thinks is important. So what could that be? Well, it could be that we make light of God's Word by choosing to, to run with certain themes and, and not with others. It might be that we quickly judge God's action or inaction it might mean that we, we make light of, of God's, God's church. We're told in Ephesians 5 that Christ cherishes his church. It says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. It says that Christ cherishes his church. There is no greater honor than being part of Christ's body. But if we, if we make light of being part of God's body, well, we're showing, in a sense, maybe unwittingly, that we're thinking of God lightly. But also, we could think of even ourselves. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul speaks of us being the temples of the Holy Spirit. And so if we think light of ourselves and the dignity and the honour that we have in Jesus, well, we're making light of, which, of that which God thinks is, is important. It's just an interesting thought that maybe you want to pursue uh, with others in a conversation. In other words, not to make light of those things which God thinks is important. Because here, this is Belshazzar setting himself up against God. So if we go back to the party, what, what happens next, though, ends the party pretty quickly. Uh, there is a hand that appears whose fingers write a message on, on the wall. I was reading this story to the kids this week, and they were just going, that's freaky. And, you know, Absolutely. You know, I think the image of Rembrandt's kind of artwork here, which was also in the kids' art book, um, 
but it, it shows that the reaction to it. You can imagine it would be terrifying um, as an image to, to see. And we're told that essentially it undoes Belshazzar. The King James Version. We see, we see it undoes him in verse 6 and 9, and the King James Version here is, is great. It says, Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against the other. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is terror, and this language of, of, of joints loosed, as you can imagine, means that he lost control of, well, commentators agree, everything. He was terrified. This was paralyzing fear that he was experiencing as he saw this in verse 6. And then the question is, well, in that moment, where does he go? Well, we see that in verse 7, he calls upon those that in, in that culture that they have confidence in, the enchanters, the astrologers, and he calls on them to interpret. But, but if, as we've been going along in this story, these guys have come up again and again and again, and it's kind of comical, and I think the, the narrator wants you to see that. You can kind of imagine it as a scene, you know, one of those time lapses where they kind of goofily come in and they come and try and do their thing, enter the scene, they're useless, and so off they go again. And I think the narrator wants us to see that they're called upon again and again and again, but it's not just comi comical because it exposes something. It exposes the, the uselessness of, of these guys to be able to reveal or interpret the things of God. It exposes the uselessness of, of these props for Belshazzar. But I think here in the story, we, we even in the midst of this, this exposure, see a glimmer of, of grace, a moment of kindness. See, God, God has frightened Belshazzar here, and he has exposed something to him. His props have failed him, and he's left with God's terror. But in a sense, it's, it's a kind terror. One commentator put it like this. It says, God's pattern sometimes, and I, th I think it's important to stress sometimes, is to aggravate our helplessness by exposing the uselessness of our favorite props. God's pattern sometimes is to aggravate our helplessness by exposing the uselessness of our props. So for Belshazzar, that was those that he put confidence in. It's as if God is saying, how's that working out for you? But he's not doing that cruelly. I think it's, it's kindly in order to, to draw us to himself because he operates with us in the same ways at times. This commentator goes on to say, whenever God brings a man to the end of themselves, smashing all his props and wasting his idols, it is a favorable moment indeed, if he will but see it. It's a favorable moment for our, for our props to be exposed as, as helpless and those things that we have confidence in. It's a favorable moment in the sense that if it helps us to see that we can trust God in these moments, that we should go to him in these moments and not to other things. That's God, how God sometimes works in our lives, but there is that qualification, if he will, but see it. Because seeing it involves two things. It involves revelation, for it to be interpreted, but it also involves humility. 
It's sobering, isn't it? Because sometimes God works this way with us. He aggravates our helplessness. He exposes our props. And in the moment, that can be really painful, can't it? But ultimately, perhaps it's a kindness of God at work in our lives in order to draw himself to us if we have the eyes to see it that way. If we hold tight to what his word tells us of his character and his promises. Well, if we go back to the story, this is is the very point here as those he has confidence in are found helpless to the situation that Daniel enters the scene. And this is the very centre point of the story in chapter 5. And what we see here is that the queen enters, we, we assume it's the queen's mother, she enters into this mayhem and into this chaos. And she speaks of one, she commends one who can interpret it. Daniel, who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. It's an echo of of Joseph when he's spoken about in the stories in Genesis. Now, the king is is likely to have, have known Daniel or known of him. He has been significant. But here it's interesting because when the king summons him in verses 13 to 16, we, we hear that the king, rather than, than pleading with him, he kind of makes a pitch to him in these verses. It has overtones of, of arrogance somewhat. He asks him, are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? The commentators agree that there's a, there's a bit of a status jab going on here. Could it be that Belshazzar has contempt for God's people as well? And then he makes a conditional request. If you can do this, then I will reward you, in verse 16. It's starting to sound like he's a bit of a sceptic. But the great irony, as, as we read this, is that the, the only one who can bring help in this situation is this cast-off Jew... He's the only one now that can help. And it's, it's a glimmer of the future where, in the future, another cast-off Jew will be the only one who can save us in the midst of our helplessness. Well, as we continue in, in verses 17 to 31, we see that the Belshazzar summons Daniel. Daniel turns away the reward, says, I don't want that. Uh, but he will interpret the writing on the wall for him. And in verse 16, Belshazzar is anxious for this interpretation. But Daniel doesn't actually reveal it until verses 25 to 28, some time later. The inscription itself read, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. These are, these are known terms of weights and measurements. But the message behind them, as we, as we read in verses 26 to 28, is that God has, has numbered Belshazzar's days. He's been weighed and found wanting, and his kingdom will ultimately split and be taken from him. It's a word of of judgment in this situation. His arrogance, his kingdom, his life is to meet an end. But you'll notice, as as we've seen, that Daniel takes some time to get us to, to that point, to that judgment. See, Belshazzar wanted Daniel to interpret what the inscription said, But Daniel wanted Belshazzar to know why his judgment was so severe. And that's what he does in verses 18 
to 23. And he does so by drawing a parallel to Nebuchadnezzar. It's a quick replay of chapters 2 to 4 that we've been looking at over the past few weeks. Daniel speaks of the gift that God granted Nebuchadnezzar, his greatness was granted to him. The power he exercised, like all royal powers back then, it was, it was untapped, but it was a power which was, was granted by, by God. But then it details, in verses 20 and 21, the great humbling moment for him as a king. Verse 21, he writes, he was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal, and he lived with the wild donkeys. It's a story we looked at last week. He lived with the wild donkeys. Kind of his humanity almost unraveled, as, as it were. And Daniel is, 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 is giving him a clear message. God can take an arrogant ruler and essentially can make an ass out of him. That's the kind of message that's communicated at this point. And then in verses 22 to 23, he comes with why God's judgment is so severe. Verse 22, But you, Belshazzar, his son, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And a bit further on in that verse, You did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Belshazzar refused here to humble himself, even though he knew of Nebuchadnezzar. And in doing so, he had set himself up against the Lord. And what's interesting just to note here, that it's not, it's not right information or right thinking here that guarantees a right response. We're told that Belshazzar knew. It was not that he, he, he could not see, that it was more that he, he would not see. His problem wasn't ignorance, but it was, was arrogance. The Apostle Paul explains it like this in Romans 1, of, of humanity in general. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Sometimes our problem isn't ignorance. Sometimes it might be. But perhaps it's the same spirit at work in Belshazzar. It's arrogance. So how do we be humble? How do we avoid that? Well, firstly, we, we have to recognise that we can't necessarily just think ourselves out of arrogance. It's not something that's external to us with more information brought in that we will be changed and transformed. Transformation has to happen from the inside out. And the promise of the prophets in Ezekiel, and we see in the New Testament, is that the Spirit is at work in us to renew our hearts, to see rightly His Word concerning His Son, and so to change and transform us. Well, Belshazzar did not, we see, humble himself. He didn't recognise that his life was in God's hands, he refused to accept this, and so he drank with contempt. But in doing so, he drank judgment upon himself. And that night, we're told, in those final verses, 
that he fell, and so did Babylon. And this was to fulfill the word of the prophets, but also the, the picture we get in Daniel 2. It's a sobering story. Now remember, it's the centerpiece of uh, these early chapters in Daniel, and so these two kings are side by side. So we, we see at the end of the story of Nebuchadnezzar, there's some kind of confession of kind at the end of each story. We don't know where he's at, uh, but in a sense that there is a recognition that his life is in the Lord's hands, and he makes a confession of sorts, whereas Belshazzar did not humble himself, showed contempt for God, and in doing so, experienced his, his judgment in this, in this case. And so, the message we, we hear in this, this passage is that God levels human arrogance. It's, the imperative is that, that we need to humble ourselves, to recognize that our hands are in, our lives are in, the hands of, of God, and that we need to humble ourselves under His hand. But again, it's not something that we can just summons and, and do, but rather it's a work that needs to happen from the outside in. Another commentator draws this beautiful picture through, through the story of Scripture, where she says that in, in Daniel 5, we see a reference to the hand, and specifically the fingers that write on the wall. But if you follow the story of Scripture, you'll see that divine fingers appear elsewhere in, in the story of the Bible. They're in creation. In Psalms, it speaks about creation being the work of God's hands, His fingers. We see it in the work of redemption as, as God's outstretched hand brings about the exodus from Egypt and he rescues and redeems his people. We see that he reveals himself to his people through writing on tablets of stone in, in the Ten Commandments. And then in this chapter, we see God's fingers issue judgment to a foreign king who, who flaunted his God-given power. So this God who creates with his fingers, reveals, redeems, he also judges and our lives are in His hands. Well, in what sense is this a comfort to us? Well, Daniel points us forward to another king, one that rather than mocking, was mocked. He was robed, and he was crowned with a crown of thorns. One who wrote with his fingers, on the ground of the possibility of forgiveness in John 8. And ultimately, one who willingly laid his hands down upon a cross to be pierced so that redemption from judgment was possible. That is our, our comfort and refuge. But we should see this and appropriately humble ourselves. I don't know what you think of, of this passage. It's strange. You might think it's madness, writing on a wall, judgment, and it is strange. But con consider for a moment, what, what if this is true? Or if it is true, it, it has huge implications. The God of heaven has your life in his hands. Is it not worth investigating more into this God to understand 
what he did in order to redeem and restore a humanity to himself in the Lord Jesus. Can I encourage you to do that? Entertain the possibility. What's to lose? There's much to gain. But then also, as we think about this in our own lives, do, do we, as we, as we think about the lessons, do we treat things that God deems important lightly? Well, let's ask for God's help to, to cherish what Christ does. His word, his church, our world, ourselves and, and others. Again, there's much to mine in each of these applications which you can do with, with others. And in the moments of, of fear, where do you turn in your helplessness? That sense when your props have been taken away from you. This may be God's kindness drawing you to himself. So let's ask God for help to see and have the faith to trust. And finally, do, do we recognise that God holds our lives in his hands? Because the appropriate response is to, to humble ourselves to that knowledge. And we do this through confession, through trust in Christ and his work in us to transform us. I don't pretend any of this is easy. That's why we have each other. It'd be great this week to, to draw one another in on a meaningful conversation about what the Spirit has taught you through the Word and what He's saying to you today. But as we close, it seems appropriate because this scene in this story was a meal. And Jesus Himself left us another meal, a meal to help us remember his work for us, and to nourish us by faith. So in contrast to Belshazzar's feast, Jesus gave us a different ceremonial act of eating and drinking, a feast to celebrate that though we are found wanting, like Belshazzar, though we are sinful and undeserving, Jesus, the new and better Daniel, in a sense, was willing to lay his hands down upon a cross and be pierced to welcome us to participate in that feast. And that's good news. So we're going to go to the Lord's table in a moment to share in communion together. But as the band comes up to sing, let me pray as we close. Father, we thank you for your love for us in the Lord Jesus. We pray that as we think of this passage, its implications for our lives, how we understand it in Christ, and what we are to do. We pray that by your Spirit you'll challenge us, you might bring us comfort, you might draw us to yourself, and may we be a resource to one another to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.